If you love the History Extra podcast and want to help us keep bringing you brilliant episodes, then please share it with a friend or a fellow history fan who you think might enjoy it. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, I'm Avantika Chilkoti, host of The Modi Raj, a new podcast from The Economist. Narendra Modi has watched over a period of rapid growth in India, but he's also the front man for a chauvinistic Hindu nationalism. Now, he's eyeing another term as Prime Minister. What will it mean for India and the world? I've been trying to get inside his head. Listen now to the Modi Raj from The Economist, wherever you get your podcasts. We go into a hospital with the expectation of not experiencing pain. Um, and the people went into the hospitals expecting that pain was going to be very much a part of that experience. That was Lindsay Fitzharris discussing the world of Victorian hospitals. Listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine. We're the UK's best selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History Magazine. For today's episode, you might need to arm yourself with a strong stomach because we're going to be entering the hellish world of the 19th century hospital. Your guide for the visit is Dr Lindsay Fitzharris, a medical historian, author and TV presenter, whose new book on Victorian medicine, entitled The Butchering Art, has just been published. She's also written an article for the December edition of BBC History magazine. Putting the questions to Lindsay was our deputy editor Charlotte Hodgman. Your book looks at a turning point in in medical history um, with Joseph Lister's theories on germs. Uh, This sort of revolutionised surgery and treatment, but what what were hospitals like before this? Hospitals in the early 19th century were really houses of death. They weren't places that you went if you were wealthy or middle class. Uh, You were often treated at home. So these were really places for the poor, and they were dingy and grimy and overcrowded. And there wasn't much to say about these early 19th century hospitals, except that they were a slight improvement over their 18th century predecessors, which isn't saying that much when you consider that the bug catcher was paid more than the surgeons and the doctors in this period. Um, the, The official bug catcher was the guy who went around and he got rid of all the lice in the beds. And um, so if you consider that there was that many insects crawling around in these hospitals, you can understand why people really avoided them and didn't want to go into them to be treated. So what, what did patients actually face during a stint in hospital? If you, if you were admitted to hospital, what could you expect in the 19th century? Well, firstly, they only admitted patients that they felt they could cure. And there were a lot of diseases that they couldn't cure in this period. So, for instance, if you came into the hospital with consumption or tuberculosis, you were automatically turned away. Um, So we're really talking about a lot of uh, surgical uh, 
patients came in. So if you broke your leg or your arm, uh, you had to have to have to have it amputated, um, for instance, which was a really grim prospect as well. You'd end up in these places, and the the, hosp- the operating theaters themselves were really theaters in a very uh, true sense. They were filled to the rafters with hundreds of spectators carrying the grime and dirt of everyday life into the Victorian period. Um, remember, this is a time before people understood germs, and this was a time also before anesthesia. So surgeons were lauded for their brute strength and speed at a time when both were very crucial to the patient survival. So a patient would be brought into this huge operating theater. Um, They'd be strapped down onto a table or sometimes they'd be sat up in a chair. Um, Oftentimes before anesthesia, they were sat in these chairs. And it's not like a chair that we understand today. They often were uh, very high so that your feet dangled um, so that you couldn't brace against the knife as it came towards you. So these were terrible prospects for these patients. And of course, you only underwent the knife if you were absolutely desperate and in need of it. Mm. And you mentioned that people observed these operations. Yeah, I mean, there were there were tons of spectators, hundreds of spectators sometimes in these operating theaters. And it wasn't always just medical students or doctors. Uh, sometimes these, these events were ticketed. Uh, people would come in and they'd want to see the life and death struggle play out on the center stage. A lot of times people say to me, oh, the Victorians, they must have been very morbid. But I always remind people that we sort of have this today. I mean, there's a reason why, uh, for instance, my Instagram page is is very popular because I put up these, these gruesome images. Um, and there's a lot of, there's a pathologist named uh, Mrs. Anjimi, um, and she puts up a lot of photos today of what the autopsy room looks like. So there's still very much a curiosity in this. And I would also argue that it wasn't just a morbid curiosity with the Victorians. They were obsessed with science and progress. So they would often come to these operating theaters to see what the latest new techniques were. And um, and even VIPs, you know, royalty, they would come, they would sit right on the uh, floor of the operating theater. Theater. So sometimes it was so crowded, they'd actually have to clear the floor before the surgeon could even begin his uh, procedure. So, you know, when you think about this kind of tense atmosphere and the patient being awake as well, it must have just been awful. Mm. Yeah, for both the surgeon and the, and the patient, really. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you get lots of um, testaments from surgeons themselves saying that they cried before they had to go into the theater. And, you know, I I think when you look back at the past and you look back at this kind of period that's so removed from how we operate today, it's easy to almost look at it like a caricature of itself. You know, you have, for instance, Robert Liston's one of my favorite surgeons from the earlier period because he's 6'2". He's uh, the fastest knife in the West End. He could remove your leg in 30 seconds. Um, And he becomes almost, uh, the stories about him become almost comical to us today. But, you know, you can imagine that it was very frustrating for these surgeons to go in there and do the same thing over and over again, get the same result. Their patients are dying of post-operative infection. They don't understand germs. Um, And and the level of anxiety as well of cutting someone's leg off as they're thrashing around and fighting you. Um, You get stories. uh, One of Robert Liston's patients jumps off the table and he runs into a closet and Liston, 6'2", and very tall for the Victorian period, chases after him, rips the door off the closet, and drags his poor guy back to the table. And uh, the patient survives miraculously, but it was pretty uh, harrowing event for the patient as well as the surgeon, I assume. Mm, so quite quite entertaining, though, for, for those watching, I'd imagine, for that sort of thing. 
Yeah, yeah, definitely. And Liston was a bit of a of a showman as well. He he would come into the operating theater and he would say, "Time me, gentlemen," and everybody would take out their pocket watches. You can almost hear the ripple of pocket watches opening as they were going to time the great Robert Liston. But you know, again, the it would have been it would have been so awful to really have to deal with both the patients and then the surgeon, and um, you get just so many stories of, of, of patients talking about, uh, remembering these experiences. So for instance, there was a a boy named Henry Pace. He was 12 years old. He was told that he was going to have to have his leg removed. And when he was told this, and he was going to have to have his leg removed without anesthetic, when he was told this in the 1820s, he asked whether it would hurt. And the surgeon said no more than having a tooth pulled out. (laughs) So he was woefully underprepared and he was brought in there and he was blindfolded and restrained. And he Counted that story later in life and said he was so awake, he was so aware that he remembers counting six strokes of the saw. Um, so, so you know, in the butchering art in my book, there's a lot of these descriptions, and you know, I think some people might say, well, there's there's almost like there's too much of this in the book, but I want people to really read the book carefully because oftentimes they're not my words. They're just the, they're the words of contemporaries of people who lived through those times. Um, you don't have to really even embellish how awful it was for surgeon and for patient at this time. Mm. I mean, we're so used to these sterile environments in, in hospitals, we sort of take it for granted. But um, in your piece, you talk about, you know, these these aprons that the surgeons wore, sort of stiff with blood, you know, unwashed. Um, you know, the, the assault on the census must have been quite o- overwhelming for people. Yeah, I think, you know, obviously people were used to it back then. But yeah, the surgeon, he would wear this apron that he never washed. In fact, the more blood encrusted it was, the higher up he was in the hospital. Um, and it was almost seen as sort of like a sign of, of respect. They called it, uh, they said the surgeons would carry around with them the cadaverous smell of rotting flesh, which those in the profession called good old hospital stink. Um, and so you can, you can just imagine that it was a very um, awful place. It smelled terrible. The surgeons rarely wash their hands or their instruments. And again, people ask, why? Why would that be? Well, if you don't understand that germs exist, why would you continuously wash your hands if they're just going to get dirty again? Um, you, of course, you would probably, you would wash them at the end of the day as you're leaving. Um, but there was really no systematic approach to hygiene because there was no understanding of germs. Um, some hospitals were a little bit better than others, but mostly in general, they were just very grimy, dingy, overcrowded places. What reasons were they given for uh, their patients dying? Why did they think this was happening? It was a question that plagued the profession for hundreds of years, and there were many, many different theories. And I go into this in the, in the butchering art. I don't want anybody to think that there was just one idea, but the predominant theory really at this time was miasma theory. And that was the idea that disease was spread through bad odors. So you start to get, for instance, um, in the 17th century, you have the appearance of the plague doctor's mask with the long beak. And this really plays into the idea of the bad odors. What they would do is they would stuff sweet smelling herbs at the bottom of the beak and they would breathe in these herbs and that would protect them against the bad odors of the plague and the bad odors of the decomposing bodies. And it kind of made sense because if you think about it, smelly areas are dirty areas and they're probably disease-ridden areas, but it wasn't a full-on explanation. And in the 19th century, you start to see a breakdown 
of this explanation because you get things like the Great Stink, for instance, in London in the Victorian period. The city just smells so bad and people are holding handkerchiefs over to their nose and they're fleeing the city because they because it smells so bad. Um, and there is really no major outbreak of disease at that point. So it really calls into question that that miasma theory. But this is the predominant theory at the time um, until Joseph Lister, who my book is about, comes along and he reads Louis Pasteur's work on germ theory. And he takes germ theory and he applies it to medical practice through the development of antisepsis. And I always say that the butchering art is really a love story between science and medicine because it's one of the first times that a scientific principle is applied to medical practice. So before they knew about that, these germ theories, if somebody post-operatively was having a, you know, had some sort of infection, how would they be treated? Well, most patients did develop some kind of infection. In fact, it was so common that you would develop an infection after having an operation that pus was seen to be integral to the healing process. It was called laudable pus um, because there was just no explanation for surgeons uh, to come up with why, why patients were developing this pus time and again, unless it was integral to the healing process. Um, how they were treated before you know, we started uh, using antisepsis, it was, again, it was really up to the surgeon. Um, it, a lot of times, very little was done. It was just sort of a hope and a prayer to see if the patient was going to survive. Uh, sometimes the wound would be cleaned, but nothing again with any kind of real understanding of germs. And that's really the key um, because you do have some people before Lister putting together this, this idea of hygiene, basic hygiene and infection rates. So for instance, you have a um, Austrian uh, physician named Semmelweis out there. And he's putting together this idea that if you wash your hands, that infection rates in the hospitals go down. But he, what, what he's not doing, which is what Lister ultimately does, is he doesn't have the agent through which diseases spread, which is germs. So until surgeons really understand that germs exist, there's really no systematic approach to hygiene. Okay. Um, what would have been the worst procedures to have been admitted for? Um, you've mentioned amputation. What what other sort of procedures would have been sort of very nasty to yeah. go through? Pretty, pretty much anything, I would think. I can't even have my teeth cleaned without having some kind of numbing agent. So for me, it just blows my mind what people would put themselves through. Um, I, I always think of mastectomies. Um, my own mother, in fact, when my book came out on October 17th, I was in the U.S. doing a, a U.S. book tour. And October 17th was the five-year anniversary um, to my mother's own double mastectomy. And when she was having that procedure done, I remember sitting in the waiting room and I was working on a blog post for my blog. And um, I was writing about the women who had had this procedure done without any anesthetic and before antiseptics. And it was a very harrowing experience. And there's one woman named Lucy Thurston in the 1840s, and she was wealthy, so she wasn't being treated in the hospital. Her surgeon determined that her breast was going to have to come off. And um, he decided he wasn't going to tell her the day. He thought that she would just fixate on the day. To me, that would make me more anxious because you'd have no idea when this guy's going to show up. So he does show up. He walks up the stairs and into her bedroom and he opens the, the hand that the knife is in and shows her the knife. And then he tells her to prepare her soul for death, um, which is not something you will ever hear a surgeon really say today. Um, but of course, in, in the past, that was something that you really had to tell the patient because there was a very real possibility that you die. Uh, Lister performs a mastectomy on his own sister on his dining room table uh, shortly after he develops antisepsis. So the thing with removing the breast, not only was it painful before anesthetics, 
but it was very dangerous even shortly after anesthetics are discovered in 1846. Um, because although you no longer have the patients thriving and fighting you on the table, you don't have an understanding of germs. So surgery actually becomes much more dangerous after uh, the introduction of ether and chloroform. Um, but Lister develops his antisepsis. He does this operation on his sister. It's very risky because you think of a mastectomy, you think it's an open wound on the chest, um, very likely to get infected. And she does survive. Um, and it's just this sort of amazing moment in, in my book, in that story. Um, but yeah, mastectomies, bladder stones, a lot of people had bladder stones back then, but they tended to be a lot bigger than the ones that we suffer from today because of the diet in the past. And um, they were painful, obviously, as you were experiencing them and they couldn't be passed. And you get stories of, you know, one guy, he he's in so much pain. He takes a nail and a hammer and he shoves it down his penis to try to break up this, this, uh, this bladder stone that he wants to pass. Um, but that was an incredibly painful operation and you were tied up. Um, again, you were awake before anesthetic. So before 1846, you were fully awake and the surgeon had to go in there, um, and, and basically shove a pole, uh, down the penis and then cut through the scrotum and remove the stone. And a good surgeon can do it in about two minutes. Um, but in 1828, there's a guy named Stephen Pollard and he goes onto the table and the surgeon, it takes him over an hour and Stephen Pollard thrashes and cries out for him to stop. And the surgeon yells back at him that he has abnormal anatomy, um, just to make the whole situation worse. And Stephen Pollard pulls through, but he dies of post-operative infection 24 hours later. And in his autopsy reports, it's revealed that in fact, he didn't have abnormal anatomy. It was the surgeon's fault. I mean, it's just awful. I mean, these, these 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 examples you're giving me you just can't believe it even happened really can you i know and there were so many so many people you know underwent the knife and uh and you have to remember also that it was very scary to see a surgeon certainly before anesthetic um and even shortly after because infection rates were so high so often the people coming into the hospitals had very advanced stages um, of these diseases. So, for instance, you get a guy who goes in to see Robert Liston, the 6'2 fastest uh, knife in the West End, and he has a 45-pound scrotal tumor. And you just think, how? How does it get to that stage? Why, man? You know, you think at like five pounds, um, it would be so unbearable. But he waits until it's 45 pounds. And Liston miraculously is able to remove this in under four minutes. Um, and there's an illustration of it that I often show on, on social media just to horrify people and <laughs> to weed out the people who can't take it on my on my following. But <laughs> but yeah, that's the, that. And again, so you get these kinds of extreme examples there's um there's another uh, guy named Robert Penman. He's he's been suffering for eight years of this huge facial tumor on his jaw, and it's so obstructive by the time he decides to go to the surgeon, he goes to Liston and Liston refuses to do it. So he goes up to Scotland and this guy named James Syme, who is in the butchering art, uh, fe featured in the butchering art quite significantly, he ends up doing this operation and it takes 24 minutes as he cuts into this guy's face without any anesthetic. And um, he's able to remove it. And the man goes on to live quite a long life. But it is incredible when you think about you know, we go into a hospital with expectation of not experiencing pain. Um, and the people went into the hospitals expecting that pain was going to be very much a part of that experience. So what were hospitals seen as like a last resort for people? I mean, you mentioned that people were, were queuing uh, almost to get in to, to be treated. But what, you know, the fact that these people are waiting so long to be treated... 
Yeah. I mean, hospitals, they were, they were horrible places as we've already established. Um, but it was, they were hard to get into, as you say, um, they operated on a ticketing system. So you needed a ticket to get into the hospital. Sometimes the hospital would charge you, uh, for your inevitable burial because it was so expected that you would die there. Um, other hospitals charged if they deemed you to be particularly foul. So when I say that these places were for the poor, they were really for what medical historians call the deserving poor people who still had some kind of income to pay for like basic room and board. Um, but yeah, they, they, it's hard to say, um, people were dying at such high frequencies, but I think you do get to a desperate situation. You have the 45 pound scrotal tumor, you have, you know, the giant tumor on your face. And you realize that if you continue to do nothing, you definitely are going to die. Um, if you go into the hospitals, you're likely to die, but you may pull through. And I think that's why you see people going into these hospitals, um, at such late stages. What treatments were available outside of hospital? Could you could you be operated on outside of a hospital, for example? Yeah, surgeons often um, operated, especially on the wealthy and the middle class, as I said, in their homes. Um, you could see a whole variety of, of quacks um, and illegitimate healers. But again, remember, I mean, the surgeon at this time could do very little for you, too. So it's it's difficult to say, well, that person's a quack when, you know, ultimately they were offering similar kinds of um, promises that maybe a surgeon or physician was as well. Um, but yes, you could see, uh, you could see your local barber in the early 19th century. He might be able to lance a boil or remove, um, a small tumor as well as do other things like shave you and, and deal with your hair. He also often treated, uh, venereal diseases, um, which is why these were tended to be male spaces. Um, you could go see, uh, just an itinerant healer, or a, a female itinerant healer. Um, you could go see a surgeon outside of the hospital, um, that was frequently done. And of course the physicians themselves. And so the surgeons and the physicians were very separate at this time. And the surgeon dealt with the external body and external ailments where the, whereas the physician treated the internal body, hence the term internal medicine, which still persists today. And the physician was seen to be much higher than the surgeon because he was, uh, educated at a university. He used his mind to heal, um, or to treat a patient rather than his hands. The surgeon was seen very much like a craftsman. So in the earlier part of the 19th century, if you were wealthy or middle class, you wouldn't want your son going into um, such a such a profession as surgery. Okay. Well, it wasn't a respected profession then, really. Not in the earlier part, but that all starts to transform in the Victorian period. And then you get things like, uh, you, you get changes like Lister coming along, uh, creating essentially scientific surgery, um, and surgery and medicine start to uh, combine into one study. So that slowly happens throughout the 19th century. But in the early 19th century, and certainly in the 18th and 17th centuries, surgery was very much seen as a, as a manual uh, labor. And so you wouldn't, you know, it, it was someone who used their hands um, to make a living. Mm. And what, um, I mean, who was Lister? What, what's his background? So Lister was a Quaker. Um, he was a very quiet, persistent man. A lot of times when I was on book tour in the U.S., the question came up time and again, why Lister? What, was it Lister? Was it the Times? 
Um, but of course, it was both. Uh, Lister is very much a product of his times. He comes along when the crisis is at its peak. Um, at, at this point, it's so bad in the hospitals that it is seriously suggested that the hospitals should just be burned down from time to time, that we can't fix it, so let's just burn them down. And um, so Lister comes along at the right time, but he's a Quaker, and his father is very interested in the microscope. So Lister grows up around the microscope. And why that's important is because the microscope is seen as uh, suspicious in medicine at this time. Um, the idea being that it would make lazy clinicians. Uh, doctors would stop trusting their own eyes. Um, and also the other part of the microscope was that you could look through the lens of the microscope and you might see interesting things, but a lot of people in medicine didn't believe it would change how you would ultimately treat the patient. So it was seen as sort of a frivolous toy. But Lister grows up around the microscope and he ends up bringing it to, uh, with him to university. And it's this sort of interest in science and this interest at looking uh, at the tissue through the microscope that ultimately makes him receptive to germ theory. Um, so, you know, at the end of his life, he said that he wanted all of his personal correspondence destroyed. He wanted his story told through his science alone. Luckily for me and other historians, that didn't happen. They kept all of his his correspondence. Um, and Lister's very much a product of his times, of the people he meets, certainly his relationship with his father, um, of the of the various surgeons like Robert Liston and James Syme, who removes the, the jaw tumor, um, who are all in the book. And um, and so he it's it's all of those things that come together that make this moment po possible ultimately. And at the time, how were his ideas um, received by, you know, by surgeons and also by the, by the public? Well, there was a lot of pushback uh, at first, especially within the medical community. And it's hard for us to imagine because we accept that germs exist. Um, I mean, I brought hand cleaner on my book tour because I didn't, you know, I didn't want to get sick. So we just, we, we operate and function in a world where germs exist. So it's hard for us to understand this, but just think there's this young man, he's coming along and he's telling you that there's these invisible little creatures and they're killing your patients. Um, and that was, that was hard for people to understand. But the other side of that coin was that he, that Lister was telling these older surgeons that they had been inadvertently killing their patients all along. And again, as, as I said, as, as sort of colorful as these stories are of the patients jumping off the table, remember, these surgeons were risking their lives to help people. This was a time before mass vaccinations. It was a time before antibiotics. So mortality rates amongst doctors was very high. They were exposing themselves to a lot of danger. And I think it was a really difficult pill for them to swallow, um, to realize that, you know, had they just been doing uh, some kind of basic level of hygiene, disinfecting instruments and washing their hands, they could have saved a lot more lives. Mm. So how did he sort of prove to people that what he was telling them was, was actually right? It's it's a slow burn. Um, it takes a while, but basically he starts to discount the older generation and he turns to his own students and he trains them in the ways. They're much more receptive to these new ideas. Um, he's up in Scotland at this point. And for various reasons, which I talk about in the book, Scotland is more receptive to scientific surgery. And ultimately, it's this generation of young surgeons that he trains. They go out into the world and they start to spread, quote, the gospel of, of Lister and of germ theory. And they become known as Listerians. Um, and it's, it's, it's really 
really through that training of these younger people that he ultimately wins that argument. But he does as well. He goes he goes to America in 1876 um, to talk about his ideas. He's actually invited by his own enemies to speak. Um, and he goes to Philadelphia. And one of the, the things that happens is there's um, a man in the audience who's inspired by Lister's talk, and he creates... Listerine, which is why a lot of people know Lister's name. And um, it wasn't a mouthwash at first. In fact, it was uh, most commonly used to cure gonorrhea. So I'm sure I'm sure Listerine really likes that I'm going around telling this story. I like to say it's a little bit of a life hack. So just throw some Listerine on it. Um, but, but that man was in the audience. There was another man in the audience in Philadelphia named Robert Wood Johnson. And he went on to create the company Johnson & Johnson. Um, and they the first things that they created were surgical antiseptic dressings. Um, so there were a lot of offshoots um, because Lister does ultimately triumph. Mm. Uh, I mean, would you say, would, if you had to sort of name sort of the, the biggest game changer in, in medicine in the 19th century, would, would he be the person that you would that you would go for? I would say so. I mean, I think that a lot of people, if they've ever even thought about the history of surgery, which is probably likely not, if they, but if they do think about it, they think of that moment when anesthesia is discovered. And the butchering art opens with the first ever operation in Britain under ether. And it's done by Robert Liston, the fastest knife in the West End. And he doesn't think it's going to work. Um, but miraculously, it does. But what was so wonderful about that moment, and I knew I had to start the story there, was that on that day... A 17-year-old Joseph Lister was in the audience. And for me, that was Lister is the one who really takes it into the modern era because after the discovery of ether, surgery becomes a lot more dangerous, as I said. Um, the patient's no longer struggling, so the surgeon's more willing to pick up the knife. He's willing to go deeper into the body. And as a result, these operations become slow-moving executions, and you see a huge spike in post-operative infection rates. So it's really Lister who ends up saving the hospital for one, because there was that discussion that we should just burn them down. So he, he ultimately saves the hospital, which is now the center of medicine. And he also saves so many lives and continues to save people's lives today because we operate knowing that germs exist. Mm. And you mentioned actually that some surgeons weren't actually very keen to use anesthetics. Why would that have been? Uh, yeah, well, and again, you have to get back into the Victorian mindset, which is sometimes difficult. But there was this kind of discussion that ether uh, might be very dangerous because pain was necessary to keep the patient alive. Um, and you can kind of see where the logic comes from that. Uh, for instance, it was sort of more widely accepted or known that if you um, had to lose a leg during war, like in the midst of, of, of battle, you were more likely to survive, probably because there was so much adrenaline pumping through you to keep your heart going. Um, so there was this idea that pain was very necessary to that experience and that if you were insensible to the pain or you were just completely out, out of it, that you might be more likely to die. Um, so there's a lot of discussions about this. Also, Queen Victoria, she's the first um, queen to, to use chloroform in childbirth, but she was very resistant to doing it as well. She had very difficult, um, she had very a lot of difficulties in pregnancy and in childbirth. And chloroform was around for a while before she finally decides to use it. Um, but again, it was this idea that women should experience the pain. It was all part of that, you know, the original sin. And it was just, it was part of that experience. Um, and she does so much for women when she does submit to the chloroform uh, to make for painless childbirth. Researching your book must have been a bit, a bit gruesome at times. Um, well, are there a lot of sources? Do you have a lot of case studies uh, available for you when you when you were when you were researching it? 
Oh, there's a wealth of, of wonderful uh, documents out there. The Welcome Collection is just one of the best medical history collections. The Welcome Library, um, the Royal College of Surgeons in London. There's so many papers related to Lister up in Scotland. And of course, I'm really lucky I'm writing a commercial book um, and it has to be digestible for a public audience. So, you know, I, I go around saying people don't know who Lister is, but medical historians know who Lister is. And there are some wonderful, wonderful scholars who've done amazing work and dedicated their lives to studying him. And I'm indebted to them as well for helping me digest uh, this this complex subject. Um, I worked with uh, Michael Warboys, um, uh, a medical historian. He looked over the manuscript and gave me a lot of input and stuff. So, you know, I don't want anybody, any academic historians at least, to think that um, I'm ignoring that fact that they've done some wonderful work on this subject. That was Lindsay Fitzharris. Her book, The Butchering Art, Joseph Lister's Quest to Transform the Grisly World of Victorian Medicine, is out now in the UK, published by Alan Lane. In the US, it's also available, published by Farrar, Strauss and Giroux. And as I mentioned earlier, you can read a piece by Lindsay in our December edition, which is out now with Lettuce Knowles and Elizabeth I on the cover. OK, well, that's about it for today, but please do join us on Thursday for more from the world of history. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast.